As you're being seated, I invite you to find your Bibles and open them up to Luke chapter 7. We'll also be in Romans chapter 8 today. Uh, Earlier this week, I was talking to my daughters. They are 8 and 7. And I was trying to explain to them what an inauguration is. So we were talking about the election. And so I, I, I came to this conclusion. I said, okay, girls, it's kind of, there's a ceremony where they swear in the new president And then afterwards, there's this big party. So my eight-year-old looks at me, and she says, well, can we go? And I was like, all right, I'll get right on that, okay? Because for some reason, I I don't think that I'm going to get an invitation. You know, if if I did receive an invitation to something like that, it would be an unexpected invitation. Well, today in Luke chapter 7, we see Jesus receiving an unexpected invitation, Beginning in verse 36, the scriptures say, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, you'll remember that Jesus and the Pharisees had been engaged in a heated debate. The Pharisees were very pious in their expression of their faith in God, but they were also very legalistic. And so Jesus' message, which featured grace and forgiveness and the love of God, often clashed with the Pharisees. So for this Pharisee, his name is Simon, to invite Jesus to his home, it was a significant, unexpected invitation. So Jesus comes into the home at big banquets back in that day and time. They would not sit at a table like you and I do. Instead, they would recline at the table. So imagine, I won't completely demonstrate, but imagine Jesus laying down. He'd have his his hand, his head in his hand, and he would kind of eat this way as they reclined around the table and entered into discussion. Well, as they were having this meal, an unexpected guest arrived. Look at verse 37. The Bible says, and a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. So she brought an alabaster jar of fragrant oil and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with the hair of her head, kissing them and anointing them with fragrant oil. So word gets out that this meal is taking place. And a woman in the town that the Bible simply describes as a sinner hears about it. You see, this lady was living a lifestyle that was going away from God. Scholars say that she probably was a prostitute or something of that nature. She was known throughout the town as someone who was a sinner. And so when she walked into the home, and in biblical days, when they would have a big meal like this, anybody could come in and engage in the conversation. You might not eat the meal, but you can always hear the conversation and be a part of it. It was kind of a come-and-go type atmosphere. So this woman walks into the home, and there's probably a little bit of a gasp. I can't believe that she's here. This is the last place we would expect to see her. And she stands behind the feet of Jesus as he reclines at the table. And she has this alabaster jar. It's full of a very fragrant oil. And she is sobbing. She is weeping to the point that her tears are falling on his feet, and she takes her long hair, and she begins wiping Jesus' feet with the hair of her head. 
And then she takes this oil, probably a nard that would be worth as much as a, a year's pay, and she begins anointing the feet of Jesus with that fragrant oil so that it fills up the entire room with the fragrance. Suddenly, all of the attention was being focused upon her. So we had an unexpected invitation, an unexpected guest, and then we see in Simon what we might envision as an expected reaction. The Bible says in verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he's talking to himself, he's thinking to himself, he's not really saying this outside out loud, but this is what he's thinking. This man if he were a prophet. So perhaps at the heart of the invitation was this idea with Simon that maybe there is something to Jesus. Perhaps he is a prophet. But now he's saying, now this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. And then you have to read this last part with contempt. She is a sinner. Okay? So he's thinking this to himself. How, how can this man be a prophet and let this woman, this sinful woman, do this? Now, Simon's problem was spiritual blindness. You see, Simon couldn't see that he too was a sinner. It was really easy for him to see the sin in the woman, but he didn't recognize that he also falls short of God's glory and that he too was a sinner. And because of all the religious things that he did, he had developed a condition called spiritual blindness. You see, sometimes what we do is within us there is sin, there are things that we're not proud of, and so we try to paint over or cover over those things through our good behavior. And that's what Simon had done. He did these religious things to cover up the fact that he too was a sinner. I, I have in my backyard an iron fence. And when we first moved into the house, about a year after we moved in, I started seeing rust show up on that iron fence. So I got a can of paint and I painted over the rust. Well, guess what? The next year, the rust was back because all the paint did was cover it up in order to really deal with the rust, you have to scrape it down, and then you have to use a special kind of primer and a special paint to keep it from coming back. But a lot of times what happens is we try to just cover up our paint over our sins, and then we see the sins in others, but we don't see the sin in ourselves, and we develop this condition called spiritual blindness. So Jesus replies to, to Simon, and I love it when Jesus does this. He does it several times throughout the gospel when someone is thinking and Jesus just dump, jumps into their brain. I mean, that would kind of weird me out a little bit, but Jesus just suddenly just jumps into Simon's brain and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he said, say it. And then Jesus gives him a lesson in forgiveness. He shares a parable. He says a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they both could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So here's the situation that Jesus sets up. You have two people. They are both in debt. And neither one of them can pay back their debt. 
The difference between the two people is that one owes 500 denarii and the other owes 50 denarii. The similarities between the two people are that they're both in debt. Neither one of them can do anything about the debt. Their only hope is that the creditor will forgive the debt. And so both the person that owes 500 denarii and the person that owes 50 denarii experience the graciousness of the creditor and they're forgiven. So both of these people had similar situations, yet they both also received forgiveness. So Jesus asked Simon, so which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave more. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Now, the main idea of the parable is that the greater the pardon, the greater the gratitude. When we understand the depths of our debt, it brings about a great gratitude. And there are some in this room that whenever you look at your past, there's a lot of darkness in your past. And when you place God's forgiveness and grace on your past, it swells up within you emotion because you understand the, the level of forgiveness that God has brought to your life. Yet at the same time, everybody in this room has done wrong. Everybody in this room, whether it's 50 denarii or 500 denarii, it doesn't matter. We're still sinners. We're all debtors, and we're all in need of the grace and forgiveness that only God can bring. And so ultimately, the parable applies to all of us. You see, at some point, you must decide, are you going to live life with a spirit of gratitude, or are you going to live life with a spirit of attitude? Are you going to be a person of gratitude that brings graciousness wherever you go? Are you going to be a person of attitude that brings bitterness, judgment, sharpness wherever you go? Corey Ten Boom is most well known for what she and her family did during World War II. In World War II, Corey Ten Boom's family would hide Jews from uh, the Nazis, the movie called The Hiding Place, the book called The Hiding Place, uh, tells about their story. And in the process of this, they got caught. They were arrested and they were taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Eventually, both Corrie ten Boom's father and her sister would both be killed there at the concentration camp. One of the things to the story, one of the aspects of the story that's interesting is that Betsy and Corey were able to get a Bible into their barracks. Now, this was against the rules. Had they been caught with the Bible, they would have probably been tortured, perhaps even killed. But they would read the Bible together, and one day in the barracks they were reading, and they came across 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18. And it tells us that we're to give thanks to God in everything. No matter what the situation, we're to give thanks to God. Well, the two girls experienced a large problem in that in their barracks there were fleas everywhere. And so nobody liked being in there because they were constantly itching and being bit by fleas. I mean, who, who would like that? But Betsy says to Corey, the Bible says we're supposed to give thanks to God for everything, so we should give thanks to God for the fleas. Corey's like, okay. And so together they pray and they give thanks to God for the fleas. 
Well, as the days go by, these two girls begin ministering to the other girls that are there in the barracks. In fact, many of those young ladies became believers, and they would actually have open Bible studies in the barracks. Now, for some reason, the Nazis never came into their, into their area. They never, they never bothered the girls. Frequently, the guards would uh, molest the young girls, and they would do things to them that were unheard of. But the guards never entered their area, and they had these Bible studies, and people's lives were being changed shortly before they went to heaven. In fact, one week before all the girls her age were executed, Corey, through a clerical error, was released from the concentration camp. She wound up spending her life going around teaching on forgiveness and being an ambassador of love and goodwill throughout the world. Well, later, it was discovered that the reason why the guards didn't enter her barracks and bother them was because of the fleas. <laughs> they didn't want to mess with the fleas themselves. And so this great nuisance that Corey and her sister thought, okay, let's just give thanks to God for, God was also using in their life to advance the gospel. Sometimes the very things that bother us the most, God is using in our lives in ways that we can never envision. And sometimes we just have to learn to give thanks for the fleas. I've made a decision this year. I'm going to give thanks to God for ocean spray cranberry gel at Thanksgiving. Now, I know I've been on a four-year crusade to outlaw that stuff, that gelatin mass that people serve to their families on Thanksgiving. However, I, I've decided that even though I cannot see what the wretched purpose is, that God must have some reason why that has become a tradition and why some of you love it. So therefore, I think we should just call it a truce and give thanks this year for ocean spray, cranberry gel, even with the little ridges around it and all that ooh, stuff to it, okay? Back to the passage. Verse 44. Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. You see, Simon invited Jesus to his home. The custom of the day was when someone came into your home to eat, you would have their feet washed so that they could be clean for the meal, but... Simon didn't do that. But the sinful woman washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon invited Jesus, but he didn't give him the greeting, a kiss on the cheek. The sinful woman kissed his feet over and over again. The sinful woman anointed Jesus with, uh, with a gift of oil, and Simon did not. You see, attitude thinks that Jesus is a gift that we are owed. Gratitude knows that Jesus is the ultimate gift of grace. And when we invite Jesus into our home, into our lives, into our church, do we do so with a, a, a sense of entitlement? We are owed Jesus? Or do we do so with gratitude? Receiving His grace, understanding His forgiveness, embracing His love. When you go to your party this Thursday, wherever that might be, what are you going to bring? 
I'm not talking about the green bean casserole. What are you going to bring? Are you going to bring a spirit of gratitude? Are you going to bring a spirit of attitude? What are you going to share with the people that you love? Gratitude or attitude? You say, well, how do I get the spirit of gratitude? Well, look at verse 47. The Bible says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. You see, she received forgiveness for her many sins. And because of forgiveness, she loved much. The spirit of gratitude flows from the fountain of God's grace. When grace erases the stain of sin from our soul, the result is a life that is free to love much. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 begins with this statement. Therefore, no condemnation now exist for those in Christ Jesus. So if we are in Christ Jesus, if we have experienced His forgiveness, His love, His salvation, if we are in Christ Jesus, the Scripture says, therefore, no condemnation exists for you because you're in Christ Jesus. A few months ago, my wife and I took our little baby son to the Denver Zoo. And we went to the rhino show at the Denver Zoo. And they brought out rhinoceroses and they sang and danced and did rhino things. Well, the zoologist said about this one, they didn't really sing and dance, but anyway. The the zoologist said about this one rhino. She said, now look closely at this rhino. Because this is a black rhino and they are very, very rare. In fact, she said, it is on the endangered species list. And what we are doing here is we are are trying to save these rhinoceroses. For the Christian who is in Christ, condemnation is not just on the endangered species list. It is extinct. There is no condemnation. It does not exist for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not extinct because of what you've done and because you went to church today and because of your goodness, although I'm glad you're here. It's extinct because of Jesus, who He is and what He has done. And so the Bible says there's no condemnation. Now, that's actually the snow-covered summit over a very dark mountain. And if you've ever read Romans, you see that it kind of builds up to chapter 8. And there's a lot of darkness on that journey up to that snow-capped statement that there's no condemnation. In fact, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, the Bible says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven. If you have your Bibles open, just go ahead and journey through Romans with me. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness 
and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, if you continue reading uh, Romans chapter 1, the Bible begins describing different people who have suppressed the truth, what that looks like, the type of behaviors that they are engaged in. And as you read Romans 1, you begin to get the sense of guilt and the sense uh, of the, the depth of sin. And you see the list of what those who have committed, so to speak, 500 denarii worth of sin have done. And there's this tendency as you read chapter 1 to see the weeping woman. Perhaps even to look down upon her and say, I'm glad that I'm not in that list. I'm glad that what I do is not there. And then you get to Romans chapter 2 and verse 1, and the Bible there says, therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. And when we get to chapter 2, we begin to see Simon the Pharisee. And for some of us, we see ourselves. Because we're glad that we're not listed in the list in Romans chapter 1, but then when we get to Romans chapter 2, we're like, uh-oh. Because I, I, I've sat over here and been judgmental and tried to paint over my shortcomings and think that they're not that big of a deal. But I, too, am a sinner. And we get to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, that familiar verse that we share in what we call the Roman road, where the Bible says, for all. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us reached that point where we trespass against the law of God and we become sinners falling short of God's glorious standard. There is no one exempt. And so there's this cold, dark truth that we live in a world that is broken by sin and we are people whose lives have been broken by sin. It has stained you. It has stained me. No one is exempt. And though there is goodness around us and though there is happiness and joy around us, there's always this nagging in our soul that you hear on the news and you see in the world and you feel in your relationships that there is something broken with our world. And you are correct. There is something broken. The world has been fractured by sin. But the story of Jesus is a story of overcoming because Christ overcomes the sin. And so when we get to chapter 5, here's what what Paul writes in chapter 5 and and verse 6. He says, For while you were still helpless, you were helpless in your sin, you could not overcome it on your own. For while you were still helpless, at the appointed moment, that's what we celebrate at Christmas and Easter, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for you. He died for your sins. And then it says in verse 8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. Now get this, Jesus didn't come to us and say, hey, you clean up your act and then I'll die. You start going to church and you start treating people better and then maybe I'll love you and then maybe I'll die for you. No, while we were still hopeless, while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. He looked into our past. He looked into our darkness. He reached through it with his love, and he died for us while we were hopeless, while we were still sinners. He demonstrated his love to us through the cross. And there on the cross, Jesus overcame sin. You go on into chapter 6, and you see Jesus overcoming death. Chapter 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's this, there's this dichotomy that's bought, presented here. Okay, over here on this side, the wages, the natural consequences of our sin and our rebellion against God is that it ultimately leads to death, both physical death and spiritual death. But the gift of God, not something that you deserve or something that you earn, but something that God gives to you and me, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's that word, in Christ Jesus. Remember, when we began this discussion, we talked about there's no condemnation upon who? Those that are in Christ. There's also life in Christ. Christ. So ultimately, here's the conclusion. Because of Christ, therefore, there is no condemnation upon you when you're in Christ. And then here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. Earlier this week, Pack and I went down to Austin for a, a Bible conference. And we were driving back from, from Austin. Anybody ever driven on I-35 from Austin to Dallas? It's a joy, I tell you. Everybody ought to have that blessing in their lives. So we're coming up, you know, coming down the road, and there's this big 18-wheeler that is carrying one of those large concrete slabs like what they use for streets and things like that. And so there's this narrow lane. Well, I decide that he's going too slow, which is something because I kind of drive slow myself. But anyway, I decide he's driving too slow, so I'm going to go around him. So I pull off to the left, and I, I, I see this lane is narrow, and there's not much room for me to get there. I mean, one false move, and that concrete's going to hit my car it would have been okay because Pack would have died, not me. But anyway, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. But one false move, and, and it was all over. All right, the passage here talks about the law of sin and death. There is a law of sin and death that one false move, and it's all over. We try not to think about it, but it's real. One heart attack, one car accident, one diagnosis. And suddenly, the law of sin and death are here. But then the Bible says that for those of us who are in Christ, we are free. The law of sin and death do not reign over us. Instead, the Spirit's law of life reigns within us because the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that as a Christian, you don't have to sin. Now, you still sin. You do things that are wrong because we still live in this sin-stained world and we're awaiting Christ's return. But you don't have to because the Spirit within you has freed you to know God, to love God, to follow God, and to do the right thing, to live in the Spirit. The unbeliever is kind of like Pavlov's dogs. They are a slave to sin. That is their natural nature. They will just go towards sin. 
But you as a Christian, you have the spirit of life within you, and you can live a life that is righteous. Now get this. Christ has taken the weight of condemnation that was on you, and he placed it upon himself. And then he placed it upon sin. So that weight that drove you to the grave, Christ took upon himself, and then he took it and he put it on sin. So sin doesn't know it yet, but it's on the endangered species list. And one day, when Christ returns, sin will be extinct. Because there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the shalom of creation that was fractured with sin will be restored and we will live with God and experience His goodness not just for an earthly lifetime but for all eternity. You see, the spirit of gratitude is in us because the spirit of God has transformed us. We are new people in Christ. We don't live under the law of sin and death. We live under the spirit of life. And because of that, we have a gratitude that should be seen in every area of our life. So this week, probably everybody in this room, you're going to sit down and you're going to eat a meal. And when the turkey is carved, where will your spirit sit? Will you sit in Simon's seat of attitude? Or will you sit in Christ's seat of gratitude? My prayer is that you will bring to thanksgiving the spirit of gratitude. And I venture to guess this. There's people in your family and there's people that you'll see this week that are hurting. People in your family, people that you love that are living in a lot of darkness. One false move away. And you have the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Bringing the spirit of gratitude with you. Ministering to people caring about them, loving them, meeting them at their point of need. As the people of Christ, we ought to be the most grateful people on the planet because there's no condemnation upon us in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's stand together. The band's going to come. I invite you to pray. I invite you to sing. If there's anything I can pray with you about, I'm here at the front. It may be that while some are singing, you just want to pray. That maybe you're surrounded by some people. You're very grateful for them, and, and you'd like to just take this moment to pray over them and thank them for who they are in your life. Heavenly Father, I, I praise you that because of Christ, our sins are forgiven. Lord, help us not to suffer from spiritual blindness and to think that we don't need your grace, but help us, Lord, to embrace your grace. Thank you, Father that in Christ we're forgiven. So, Lord, we don't live with that dark cloud of condemnation over us. Instead, Lord, we live with the snow-capped summit of heaven over us, knowing that you are our present and you are our future and that we are alive in you. So, God, I ask that you will drain from our soul the critical attitudes that tear others down that fail to see the blessing around us 
to take for granted that which is splendid in your eyes. And Lord, fill us with a deep, deep sense of gratitude so that we might bring a gracious spirit, a forgiving spirit, and we might bring life to people that are enshackled to the law of sin and death. Father, help us to love. Help us to minister. And may we bring glory to you in all things and give thanks to you in all things because we trust that even when we cannot see, you are doing work that draws people to your cross and proclaims the riches of your greatness. It's in Jesus' name we worship. Amen.